You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Adam, Julia, and Tyler. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. For the past couple of episodes, we've been recovering old territory to reintroduce some of the players and refresh the story in our memories. Today, though, we're going to pick up on that story where we left off more than a year ago, and we're doing so at a run. First, though, one note. Today's show might seem a bit different than usual. I recently had surgery on one of my hands, which has made typing a difficult, painful, and frustrating nightmare. I'm healing up just fine, but it's made making notes and outlines difficult. Handwriting is also right out. My handwriting is virtually illegible, even at the best of times, and this is not the best of times. So today's episode might be a bit more off-the-cuff and improvisational than usual. I'll do my best not to swear and to stay on track. But with all that in mind, let's jump right in, and as I said, we're doing so at a run. This is episode 140, Perils and Accidents. When we left off, the pirates had just sacked the city of Guayaquil. They waited around in Guayaquil for a few weeks for a ship called the Catalina that was scheduled to appear and reportedly full of rich cargo. Sadly, though, for the buccaneers there in Guayaquil, according to Ravno de Luzon, quote, Catalina was returning to the port when, unfortunately for her, she met with Captain David's frigate that sailed much better than she. He could have taken her without making as he did two days' fight of it, had it not been that the greatest part of his crew, being continually drunk, failed twenty times to come up close to board her. They thought putting up a bloody flag, the Spanish would quickly be brought to strike, but therein they were mistaken. David's people growing sober on the third day, the Spaniards were so terrified that they ran ashore. David's men went to save two Spaniards who were swimming, and having escaped the danger of drowning, told them that their captain had had his thigh shot off with a cannonball. End quote. You can see from that quote why I enjoy Ravno de Luzon so much, 
In a way, today's going to be an exploration of the many reasons that I feel that way. He's just so much more fun than Dampier or Ringrose is. But not only did Edward Davis show up with the Catalina, which of course denied the ship to the people in Guayaquil, Edward Davis had some bad news to share with the other pirates. I told you last time that the cavalry was on their way, and by cavalry I meant a squadron of elite Biscay mercenary soldiers. David F. Marley writes in Pirates of the Americas, quote, The buccaneers were joined by Davis, who brought in word that a squadron of Peruvian privateers was on its way to drive them off. The Peruvians appeared by May 27, 1687, consisting of the San Jose and San Nicolas of twenty guns apiece. Commanded by the Biscayans, Dionisio Lopez and Nicolás de Igazara, plus a small patache. End quote. Now you might remember the Biscayans. They were Spanish privateers that were forged in the contentious and difficult Bay of Biscay. That's the bay shared by Spain and France that also sees a lot of Portuguese and English traffic. Were it a time of war between Spain and France, or Portugal and Spain, or Spain and England, it was a dangerous piece of water. And these Biscayans were some of the best privateers in the world. They were hired back in 1685 to augment the Armada de Barlavento in the West Indies. They were hired specifically to counter the rising threat posed by buccaneers like Lauro de Graff and Michel de Grammont. Now, you might remember the sea battle that was fought between these pirates and this flota of Biscayans as they pulled out of Guayaquil. We spent a whole episode on it a year ago or so, so we don't need to talk about it here, but it was a contentious fight. However, the pirates escaped mostly unscathed from Guayaquil. But in the wake of that battle, all of the fighting ships that could be raised by Peru were called into action to hunt these pirates down. So when I say we're starting at a run, we're starting on the run. The pirates had to escape. Per Lusan, and there are a lot of quotes today because, as I said, my hand hurts, quote, On the 12th, Captain David's frigate left us, he designing to go and careen at the Isle of Galapas, that's the Galapagos, and then to sail away for the Strait of Magellan in order to return for the North Sea. As for us, he continues, our vessels were so small, and withal so bad, that it was impossible we should get up higher than the coast of Peru. Neither could they also contain such a quantity of water as we had occasion for. These difficulties made us resolve to return to the western coast, that we might so endeavor to find a way to return to the North Sea overland. We weighed on the 13th, and on the 15th we put ashore in a canoe, where we surprised a watch of fifteen Spanish soldiers, who were set upon the side of a curious river. The entertainment we gave them forced them to own unto us that they were to guard the river, which they called El Meralda, because of the many great pieces of emeralds. End quote. And just to be clear, when he says they were bound for the western coast, he means the coast of modern-day Mexico. After a quick jaunt by the pirates to the nearby town of Quito, which they found lightly guarded and unsuspecting, the pirates stocked up on the emeralds they found there. And that, that reminds me, I should really mention the treasure that they had on board. From this entire voyage, but from Guayaquil in particular, they had a ton of treasure, and everything that they still had with them was the good stuff. 
They had coined and raw gold and silver. They had gemstones. These emeralds were the most of it, but they had others, and they had pearls in huge quantities. Before moving on, after they took Quito, they split it all up. They divvied their shares out according to the rank and indemnity payments that they had all agreed upon. Every man now knew exactly what his share from this voyage was going to be, which is indicative of something. This voyage was over. I mean, if they came across a ship, sure, they might try and take her, but this was, as far as everyone was concerned, their payment for this entire adventure. Now, they didn't have much in silk or dye or spices. They had traded most of that to Edward Davis. It would be easier for him to carry that larger cargo while they had the more precious small valuables. But then, their little fleet got scattered by a squall. Now, this fleet was made up of smaller craft, as he said, like sloops and barks. At this point, Santa Rosa had been scuttled. And the entire fleet lost sight of each other. But a few days later, the sloop that carried Mathurin de Moray and Ravneau de Luzon captured a ship. It was a slave ship, out of Panama, bound for Lima. Now, the men and women they found on board, the now-freed slaves, had some news that really interested the pirates. First of all, they had news of a treasure galleon, unfortunately unloaded of all her treasure in Panama, but there being loaded with guns and soldiers. That galleon was being outfitted for the express purpose of hunting down the pirates in the Pacific. De Marais and Lusanne, certainly, but also all of the other comrades whom were lost. However, these former slaves had another piece of information that at least one of those other ships had run aground and damaged their ship on an island in Panama Bay. That is what that galleon was going out to attack. These freedmen were free to go, as they pleased, but they elected to sail with the pirates, partly because the pirates could help protect them, and partly because the pirates knew somewhere they could go. And it worked out in the pirates' favor as well, because they knew exactly where their comrades were. The two ships rushed off, and arrived in plenty of time to pick up their comrades and escape before the Spanish could get there. But with that, the chase was on. Now, this chase in the Pacific was threefold. First of all, there were the former slaves. As a commodity, you know, not human beings, but as slaves, they were highly valuable to the Spanish, not only in the investment that the Spanish had made back at Port Royal, but in the labor that these slaves were intended to do. The Spanish wanted these slaves back very, very much, and the former slaves obviously wanted to escape that fate. And then there was the Peruvian armada that was sailing in from the east, hot on the pirate's tail, in a bid to recapture all of the treasure that had been stolen, and to, you know, kill the pirates in a horrific public display. And I want to be clear here, the pirates absolutely deserved that. Guayaquil had been a horror show filled with rape and murder and torture and plunder. But then there was this Spanish galleon to the north. Ravno de Luzon describes this galleon, an Acapulco galleon, that might very well have been the very same galleon that Signet had spent so much energy trying and failing to capture. He writes, quote, When this ship returns from the Philippine Islands, where the Spaniards drive a great traffic, tis one of the richest vessels that sails upon the ocean. 
It's of a prodigious business, and built so strong that she is afraid of nothing but land and fire. She is provided with forty pieces of cannons. She goes out yearly from the port of Acapulco, convoyed with a patache of twenty-eight guns, and laden with pearls, gold dust, and precious stones. The ship had great advantage in making this voyage, that is, that in making choice of a proper season, she goes and returns without being put to the trouble of veering about and sifting the sails. And tis beyond dispute that she cannot be met with any that wait for her before the port of Acapulco at a certain season of the year. End quote. And when Luzon says that she cannot be met with before the port of Acapulco, well, it's almost as though he's talking about the signet, who tried that very thing and was unable to reach her. Luzon continues, quote, She might, in less than eighteen months' time, baiting the perils and accidents she might be liable to at sea, return with immense riches. End quote. And Luzon goes on to mention that at least half of the potential strength of the Acapulco galleon was usually out of commission. The ship was so richly laden with the treasures of the Orient that half of her gun decks were below the water line. But now that all of that treasure was ashore, even despite the extra hands that were on board, all of those ports had operational guns readied for action. Now, the Spanish plan, which probably should have worked, was to cut the pirates off near Panama. That galleon, and her accompanying ships, was going to trap the pirates there near Panama. Even if the Spanish there were unable to take the pirates, that would give the Peruvian armada time to catch up. And that would have happened had the pirates continued on their course. But then they ran into that slave ship, and they chose to take her and free the slaves, and they were warned of the danger. So now that the fleet was back together, Pierre Le Picard and Mathurin de Marais made a change in course. They caught a wind heading southwest that led them deep into the Pacific, but also well out of harm's way. At least, the Spanish were unlikely to find them out there, but they were still at a disadvantage. They needed food and water. Remember, they couldn't hold much on their little vessels. And eventually, they needed to find a landing site at which they could disembark and begin their trek across America. They needed to get back to the mainland. But imagine that, heading leagues and leagues out to sea, and then the leagues and leagues back. That took a lot of time. Meanwhile, the Spanish had patrols up and down the coast, keeping an eye on every potential landing site. I mean, you can see the issue here. Nearly every time the pirates attempted to come ashore to collect water, they found a Spanish man-of-war or a garrison waiting for them. On the one or two occasions that they actually managed to get ashore, they usually had to effect a hasty retreat when the Spanish arrived on the scene, and once or twice they had to fight their way free from that. And the Spanish could have chased after the pirates, but why bother? Their strategy of patrolling the coast and guarding the ports was working so well. And in those fights for escape, a few pirates were killed. A few others died of natural causes out on the sea, however, these pirates made a specific point of burying their dead on land rather than at sea. It was important to them. But Lusanne tells us, quote, The Spaniards believe themselves revenged when they cut into pieces or burn the dead body of an enemy. We were assured that when we buried any of our men in their country, they dig them up when we were gone. 
for to exercise cruelty upon those carcasses which, when alive, they could not make us feel. End quote. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Now, at first glance, I'm tempted to just brush that aside as propagandistic nonsense. I mean, Sulla might disinter Marius and dump him in the river, the Soviets might hide Hitler's bones, and we might dump bin Laden in the sea. But that serves a purpose. That denies your enemies a place to pay homage. But who was out here to pay homage to a few ragged pirates? Why would they bother doing that? But then... I think about the religious angle. The Spanish were a deeply religious Catholic culture, and that might explain something of this behavior. I mean, in their view, the heretic Protestants weren't going to be going to heaven. But what about the French, most of whom, even the pirates at this point, were Catholic? Not necessarily devout or even really practicing Catholics, but Catholic nonetheless the Spanish may have been denying these Catholics a proper burial and thus denying them entry into heaven. Now that's not a belief held by the modern church, but 17th century theocratic monarchies had much more severe belief systems. Or then again, Luzon could just be lying, it could be propaganda. Regardless though, the pirates were having real trouble for weeks and weeks all along the coasts of Panama and Costa Rica. Luzon writes of Costa Rica, quote, From this port to Acapulco, we have no harbor. 
This country upon the South Sea is best peopled with several very rich towns. More gold mines are found there than in Peru and are more valued than the mines of Tosi. Therefore, it is not without reason that this coast is called Costa Rica. On the 7th of December, 1687, we went to make a descent upon a town called Muema Luna. We found a very strong entrenchment made upon a rock that stands upon the river. But the Spaniards therein made no great resistance, no more than in the town where we completed our victualing. The prisoners we took told us that about a month before they had seen a frigate pass by. End quote. What he's saying is that they found a town that did have an entrenchment, a small fortification, but no major ships and no big guns, so they were able to take the town and learn that just a few weeks earlier, a frigate had passed by their way. That gave the pirates, for the first time, a slight advantage. They had some knowledge of Spanish movements in the region. Specifically here, they knew that at least one flota was currently to the east, toward Panama, opposite their destination. This was good news, at least potentially. The pirates might now have a place to go ashore and to cross over to the Caribbean. They might have it here in Costa Rica, not originally as planned in Mexico. Now, it might still be impossible to do so here, and the captains were prudently cautious about this. If they invested everything into crossing here, they might never make it. There were a number of potential dangers, but one stood out above all. In the surrounding countryside here in Costa Rica, there was a cavalry unit that, at least Lusan tells us, numbered up to maybe 6,000 men. At this point, this cavalry could be a hundred or two hundred leagues away, or they could be just over the next rise. The pirates had no idea. Perhaps even more dangerous, the cavalry could, and probably was, split up into smaller groups of one or two hundred men dotting the land and keeping an eye on every potential landing point. Without any good intelligence on this, the pirates could be ambushed at any moment. More concerning than an ambush, even, was the possibility of losing their ships. If they invested everything into a crossing here in Costa Rica, the Spanish might show up and destroy their ships, at which point they would be forced to cross, and then they might just run into the cavalry. However, if they had their canoes and their sloops and their barks, they still had a line of retreat. They still had somewhere to run. If their ships were taken, everything was lost. So De Marais gave permission to 18 men to stay ashore and to do some reconnaissance. Luckily for us, Ravno de Lusan was among the 18. He writes, quote, The greatest part of our men were not content to pass by land to the North Sea because of the five or six thousand men wherewith we were threatened. Wherefore we left those that were minded to return to the canoes, and eighteen of us, who found ourselves less weary than the rest, stayed behind. We followed a great road which we met with soon after they had left us, and had not walked above an hour when we took three horsemen, whom, when we had asked where we were, they told us that about a quarter of a league off there was a town called Chiloteca. We had a mind to run after our men, to acquaint them with this account, and engage them to go back with us to the town. But the apprehensions we were under of being discovered, 
and thereby giving the inhabitants time to put themselves into a posture of defense, hindered us to do so, and made us undertake the boldest, most resolute, and the rashest action that could be thought of to adventurously enter the town, where we surprised and frightened the Spaniards. We took the officers and fifty persons, including the women, prisoner. End quote. I mean, that's a movie, right? The boldest, most resolute, and rashest action. Eighteen intrepid pirates take a small town in Central America. They surprised and frightened the Spaniards and took fifty persons, including the women, prisoner. Coming soon on Netflix. And of course, in a pirate movie, you need to begin on a ship at sea, but you move on to this second act very quickly. It's almost a western, right? The Dirty Eighteen. Now, the pirates had taken the church in the center of town, along with all of their prisoners, and that's great, but there's still a bunch of people out there with guns and swords. What's more, the prisoners that they had in the church had some bad news for them. Some of that cavalry that the pirates so feared, 600 of them, were expected back in town at any moment. That bold, resolute, and rash action turned out to be kind of a bad idea. And that's how you end the second act, right? The pirates are at their darkest point and death is at the door. The only real advantages that these 18 pirates had were the church itself, which was relatively defensible, and the Spanish lack of knowledge about their numbers. The people would have assumed that there were far more pirates in the church. Those 18 pirates blew into town and took prisoners so quickly that they scared off nearly all the people. Luzon writes, quote, They were seized with such a panic, supposing us to be far more numerous than we were, that all the rest would doubtless have been taken and bound by us had it not been for their horses, which they mounted to ride away upon. End quote. And then the pirates did something incredibly stupid. They left a few behind to guard the prisoners, but most of them went out to scour the town for valuables. But then the people returned. Quote, the Spaniards, who were a little recovered of their astonishment, entered into the town again, and after we several times conflicted with them, we entrenched ourselves in the church where we had put our prisoners, who believed their people pursued us close which made them, the people in the church, so bold as to run to the swords and other arms we had, wherewith they wounded one man. We got to the doors and fired upon them till there were no more than four men and their wives left alive. End quote. So the pirates, surprised by the return of the people that lived there in town, fought several small skirmishes, eventually making it back to the church and, looking out, trying to see if anybody was after them, those people in the church grabbed weapons and attacked them. Then the pirates were forced to hold the door and fire both inside and outside of the church. It doesn't get much more exciting than that. But then it gets dark. The pirates killed all but eight prisoners, forty-two or more. Four men and four women were left alive. So the pirates grabbed their guns and their swords and climbed over the pile of corpses they had just created and took those eight prisoners quietly out the back door where they climbed on some stolen horses and rode out of town. And that's basically the end of a western. I mean... 
Costa Rica is a lot more lush than the American West, but a posse of black hats making a final stand in a Spanish church in Central America, then stealing horses to ride off into the sunset? I mean, that's a Zorro movie. And the pirates, again, were definitely the black hats. Quote, We mounted the horses, and with our four prisoners of each sex, went away with as little noise as we could. The Spaniards sent one to treat with us, but we refused and fired upon him, for fear if he came too near, he should know how few we were. End quote. If this were a spaghetti western, with our intrepid band of anti-heroes, or perhaps our ragged group of outlaws, if it were a spaghetti western, this is where to end it, riding off into the sunset. And I think that is where we're going to leave it today at the end of what appeared to be a last stand. But it wasn't the last stand for these pirates. They had several more last stands to come before they would reach safety. Next time, we're going to discuss the final days of these pirates in the Pacific. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or your family, and everybody who has given us a like or a rating or a review, all of you make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you can do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight